Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 304, being recorded on Thursday, April 6th. 2023. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back. Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, you've been uh, burning up the frequent flyer miles. How's, how have all your trips been? Uh, I have. I just I did a double header. I was just in Las Vegas for Shop Talk. And then uh, sadly, I had to cut out of Shop Talk a little early and head down uh, South America uh, to meet with a bunch of Pubis's clients. I don't, I'm not sure I said the plural right there. Pubis's clients in, uh, Brazil. So I got to visit Sao Paulo for my second time. Pubisai? Pubisai. I don't know. Yeah. You think it'd be in the manual of, of how to, how to pronounce your company's name? We. Oui. <laughs> uh, but Scott, you sound more like relaxed and laid back than you usually do. Why is that? Yeah, I am coming to you live from my spring break. I'm down here at the North Carolina coast, Jay Tone, and uh, apologize, I'm not up to my usual audio quality. I know that's going to drive you crazy, but I figured it's been 304 episodes. We can have a low fidelity one for me. Low fidelity, Scott, is still better than high fidelity most people. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And is it nice down there? It is. We're having good weather. It's nice and sunny. Uh not its usual heat, so it's kind of a up to seventy eight ish, but it's nice. It's kind oh, of fun to walk I'll, in the beach when it's not blazing hot. Yeah, I was gonna say I'll take that. Yeah, probably better than Chicago, I have to say. Yeah, it has just in the last couple of days warmed up. We hit seventy yesterday, and then it dipped back down to fifty today. But um, I'm heading out on spring break this weekend as well, so I'm I'm looking forward to some warmer weather also. Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, you're going to a more exotic location. I'm, I'm jealous. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're a family and I are going to the Caribbean. So that, uh, it, it is, uh, purportedly very warm there. So just, uh, desperately trying to get all the last stuff done here so that we can, uh, go without any guilt. Cool. Including publishing a podcast. I love it. That is priority is number one. I can't, we can't leave without, uh, all our listeners that let me hear it at Shop Talk that we haven't been publishing quite as frequently as they'd like. Yeah, it's uh, between all the things we have going on, it's been a little hard this year, but we'll, we're we're getting this one in the can. Before we jump into e-commerce, um, have you been uh, tracking the Mandalorian? You know, I have. Uh, it's another great season. Uh, I feel like we're we're treated to like like you know premiere movie caliber content every week now. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm really enjoying. Uh, no spoilers, it's yep. part of our policy, but I'm enjoying the the storyline and it's kind of a fun adventure to see where they're going to take us. The, uh, Filoni verse, uh, is uh, pretty interesting and, and enjoyable. In, indeed. Call it. Uh, did you get fooled by any April fool's jokes? I didn't. It was on a weekend this time. So yeah, I feel like usually at work is when I get, get kind of uh, caught up in those things. But, and the ones I saw companies do were just like, so outrageously silly. It, a lot of them, you know, when you're in a recessionary period and doing layoffs and stuff, they kind of, it's hard to, Try hard to be. to be super jovial. So yeah. a lot of them, we either kind of hit flat or we're just kind of like, uh, not, not really rocking it this year. Yeah. I, I, I made a LinkedIn post asking why it seems like all these companies are only like really innovative one day a year with cool product releases. And <laughs> I thought that would be a like pretty transparent, um, comment. And uh, I got like 20 comments back talking about why companies aren't innovative anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I was kind of referencing all the the fake April Fool's products. I launched a product, uh, an AI-based tool uh, that puts your name on the exclusion list when you buy a product so you get to stop seeing ads for it. I saw that. Is that real or that was an April Fool's joke? It was an April Fool's joke. Uh, but uh, uh, the feedback I got is very clear that if someone does want to build that, um, they, they could definitely make some money. Um, I thought it was funny because it's a feature built into every advertising platform. There's nothing stopping anyone from doing it. That's why I thought it was funny. But, uh, apparently like 
taking the email address of all the people you sell something to and uploading it uh, to a server via an API is too hard. Well, the the problem is I only, you know, I'm okay with you pitching me other products. It's just not the one I just bought. Exactly. So, so it seems like the way you pitched it was much broader based. Like my whole, I would never hear from you again. Yeah, maybe. I uh, uh, I mean, I, I wrote it on a plane on the way home from Brazil, <laughs> sleep deprived. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you will be happy to know that I use Midjourney to create a logo for the new product. Oh, cool! Yeah, I've been really enjoying Midjourney. It's been a lot. I know of fun. you're getting good at it. You've uh, uploaded some pretty cool images. Yeah, I'm the king of anything to do with penguins. I know and, you've uh, got some like a lot of penguins lounging on the beach. I'm a very specific command engineer for for anything to do with penguins. Uh, yet another. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go vote for you on LinkedIn for that skill. <laughs> <laughs> my long tail of skills. The, uh, let's talk about your Brazil trip. Let's do that first. Okay. Shop talk. Uh, I wasn't able to make it this year and I want to get kind of meaty on some of that stuff. Cause yeah. there's a lot of really good, good topics, but tell us about Brazil. Yeah. So short trip to Brazil. Um, for those that aren't familiar with that market, it, it's pretty interesting. It, it's the largest market in Latin America. People talk about Latam all the time, but the, the dynamics in each country are wildly different. And of course they speak a completely different language in Brazil than they do in the rest of Latin America. So like it tends to be pretty variable country to country. Um, the retail landscape in, in Brazil isn't super dynamic or interesting. Um, there, there's some good retailers, but there's nothing that would look super exciting or revolutionary to anyone that's used to shopping in the U S. Um, but e-commerce is a pretty interesting battleground Amazon is not the incumbent. There's uh, a marketplace you know well, Mercado Libra, um, that's, that really focuses on Latin America. They, they're by far the largest marketplace in Latin America, and I think they're still bigger than Amazon. Um, but Amazon came to Brazil late, and, and people were speculating that they would have no chance, that there's uh, all these laws that are unfriendly to expats, and Mercado Libra had a local um, presence in Brazil and all this stuff. and my my sense is both companies are doing really well and continuing to thrive. Um, e-commerce is growing similar to the U.S. Like they tend to be ten to fifteen percent a year growth for e-com and four percent for retail. And both Mercado Libra and Amazon, which are by far the two biggest players in Brazil, are both growing much faster than that industry average. Um, so. I, having been there four years ago and back now, four years ago, people are like, Amazon's the new guy and we don't think they'll make it. And I, I think like like in most other markets, what they've learned is that if Amazon is really serious about your market, they're they're definitely going to be able to win over shoppers. And, and they've opened a ton of infrastructure and they seem to be a, a, a credible competitor. But it's kind of fun to be in a market where there's two legitimate uh, competitors. Yeah, yeah. And then... Um did you go to anywhere else in South America or just Brazil? Sadly, uh, just Brazil and just Sao Paulo, which is biggest city in, in uh, Latin America, like 22 million people in the metro area. Um, the digital stuff that was fun to me in Brazil. Uh, so, you know, I like to talk about these Chinese companies that are doing really well in the U.S., uh, Xi'an. Um, and Xi'an is doing a bunch of experiments in Brazil that they're not doing anywhere else. Um so in most of the country, Shein is a direct-to-consumer model where they have deals with a bunch of factories and they, they sell direct-to-consumer. Um, in Brazil, they are a marketplace with 3P sellers. Mm. Um, and so that's their first pilot for 3P. Um, and I don't know if it's related to this or not, but there's a, a longtime SoftBank exec who led like a $100 million investment in Shein who's based in Latin America and just took a job as like, the head of Xi'an in Latin America. Um, and so it seems like they, they definitely have uh, a vested interest in the market. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see how well Xi'an's doing there, like they are here. And then, you know, Timu is only a three-month-old company. It's a Pinduoduo Duo uh, company that has done really well here in the U.S. with app downloads, and they did those Super Bowl ads. And very similarly, they are making a huge... Uh, advertising investment in Brazil and getting a lot of traction. So that was interesting. Um, all of Latin America is having an inflation problem right now. And it's kind of interesting. Brazil has had this horrible inflation problem for a long time. And so there's almost a way in which Brazil is 
doing economy is doing better than a lot of other Latin America economies because they sort of already felt the pain of the of like truly massive inflation that like makes our inflation seem silly. Um, so that was interesting. And then the, to me, the most geeky coolest thing of all, um, although controversial is during the pandemic, the Brazilian government launched a government sponsored instant payment system. Um, so like a, a, a digital wallet, but they, the distinction between instant payments and digital wallets, digital wallets can hold like credit cards and traditional forms of payment. Instant payment is kind of like, um, you know, dr- uh, direct withdrawal from or transfers from one bank to another. Um, and so they launched this national digital instant payment system called PIX. Um, and so if you're a merchant, you, you can accept PIX and you don't have to pay any credit card interchange fees. Um, you get your money instantly from the consumer. There's all the, the, you know, typical, um, anti fraud and consumer protection stuff in it. And it launched in the middle of the pandemic in 2020, and today it's uh, used by 70% of the Brazilian population. Um, so I have to be honest, like there's, I'm in, in one sense a little jealous because I believe there's a lot of digital experiences that get held back in the U.S. because it's such a pain in the neck to pay for stuff. Yeah. For a while, most of Latin America was COD, and I always had it explained to me that it was kind of like um, – they like to pay with cash because of the inflation problem. They, they like to keep cash more than in the bank. They don't trust the banking system a lot of times. Um, so is this pick thing replacing that? That COD is the most popular payment mechanism? Yeah, it definitely has online. Um, there still is some COD for sure. It, it depends on um, the delivery window of the goods. Mercado Libre and Amazon deliver uh, like un- unsurprisingly fast. But like, say you order furniture from Magazine Luisa and it's going to get delivered two weeks from now, like the, you, you want to settle up at point of delivery, not at point of order because of that, that currency fluctuation or, or at least you did. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know the exact breakdown, but, uh, um, it just, uh, it's interesting to have this like super ubiquitous payment and part of me, I I believe the last time I was in Brazil, this didn't exist yet. And um, there wasn't a lot of regulation. So everybody and their brother was launching a digital payment method. And they were all like a bunch of them were like fraudulent and sketchy. And like I went down there and met like a client that was like a chocolatier that made chocolate. And they're like, and we have our own digital wallet. (laughs) You're just like, why? Why does this country need 400 digital wallets? And so part of me imagines that this pick system was sort of... um, in response to the private sector running amok. Very cool. And then how was the flight there and back there in our, they're in our time zone. Yeah. Right. But you, but it's kind of a long flight there. And back there uh, so Sao Paulo is uh, slightly more East. So for me from Chicago, it's two hours ahead uh, for you. Definitely. They'd be one hour ahead of you. Um, the, the flight from Chicago would be uneventful. It's about a 10 hour direct flight, but, uh, you can't get there from Las Vegas. So I had to go Las Vegas to Dulles, which is the wrong direction. Um, <laughs> and then, and then down and, uh, I had a tight connection. I was super nervous. Uh, everything went, went perfectly. I'm sitting in my comfortable seat on the plane for the last leg of the flight down there. And I say to myself, uh, all green lights. And right then the engine conked out on our plane, <laughs> went back to the gate, swept at the airport for like five hours. And yeah, it ended up being a 24 hour travel day. Oh, I hate this. Well, yeah. Uh, but lucky, fresh Jason and exhausted Jason aren't all that different. <laughs> just kind of pull the string and you just start talking. Exactly. And it is definitely true that my travel muscles have atrophied. Um, so like, I don't know, just, uh, not quite as uh, routine as it used to be for me. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, give me a rundown of shop talk. What was all the good, good sessions there? Yeah. Uh, well, so high level, uh, this was the shop talk that definitely felt like back to normal hundred percent. Like, so there were over 10,000 people there, which I think was the attendance of 2019, if I'm remembering right. Um, it felt super vibrant and busy and, you know, you couldn't get a Starbucks because there was a super long line. Uh, for the first time that I remember, you couldn't get a hotel room at the show hotel. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so a ton of people were having to stay off site, which uh, is a little bit of a bummer. Um, the the thing that has grown a ton is, uh, you know, Shop Talk offers this meetup service, um, you know, where it, it's kind of like Tinder, uh, B2B Tinder, right? Like you you give a list of, of uh, uh, potential customers you want to meet and they give a list of vendors they want to meet. And if you both swipe right, like they book a meeting. Uh, so Shop Talk booked 50,000 meetings for this event. And uh, you can you can go online and like get, you know, Google pictures of the meeting space. It's way bigger than the exhibit space. So like it, 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 it was a pretty interesting dynamic. And people felt like because it was double opt in uh, that the quality of the meetings was pretty good. Yeah. And that's where... So this is popular in Europe for a while, and then most U.S. shows never did it, but it sounds like we're moving to that where, as a retailer, if you agree to X number of meetings, they'll pay for your, they'll comp you a flight, the ticket to the show in a room. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, and uh, they still have that. So, yes, if you agree to a number of meetings, you get comp to the show. Um, I'm not sure about if they comp your hotel room or not. I don't remember. But um, they used to kind of aggressively sell these meetings to vendors. And back then, vendors were like, the meetings are hit and miss because you get a lot of kind of mid-tier people that were just using the meetings as a way to fund their trip and that weren't really interested in the products. Um, my sense is that they, they've stopped doing that heavy sell, and they now make the meetings free. If both people opt in... Um, you you don't you can be a vendor and get as many meetings as you want with people that that agree to see you and the only people that are required to take a meeting are these retailers that get their trip comped um but they still get to pick from amongst the people that want to meet with them so it it sounds like a little more voluntary and it sounds like it's working better and the inside trade show baseball uh the the guy that founded this show and sold it uh Anil um apparently uh, started a company to write the software to manage all these meetings and he sells it as a SaaS service. And apparently that's another business that's taken off for a Neil um, that a bunch of shows are, are now using this, this uh, B2B Tinder software. That guy never misses an angle. Yeah. Got to respect that. I do. Always got a hustle going on. I do. I, you know, normally I'm anti serial entrepreneurs, but you know, occasionally someone wins me over. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, so that was kind of the vibe. Uh, felt back. Lots of people were super kind and came up and uh, uh, told me how much they appreciate the show and how much they regret that you weren't there. There are some people that feel a little abandoned, that feel like you love your uh, new Get Spiffy family better than you love your old e-com family. Um, and I, I feel like they were sincere in regretting that they didn't get to say hi to you. Well, they, they can visit with us. Every so often on the podcast. Exactly. Um, so that was kind of the vibe. Uh, and then, you know, as per usual, they had a bunch of keynotes. They had a bunch of uh, track content. Um, they had a big, vibrant uh, trade show booth and this this uh, meeting space. Um, and I kind of divided all the themes of the show into four big themes. And the first thing I should tell you is... The first day of the show, after about three keynotes, I made a tweet that like the shop taught drinking game this year is uh, retail media networks and generative AI that you have to drink every time each one of those things came up. And it got like 5,000 retweets. Um, so it seems like there was pretty violent uh, mm-hmm. ag- agreement on those two themes. So uh, as it turned out, those were two of the big themes was retail media networks and um, uh, generative AI. And then the other two... Uh, that I like to talk about are kind of the social commerce, um, video commerce uh, progression. And then uh, this last one that we'll talk about at the end called platforms. Um, so the first one, retail media networks, it's pretty interesting. Like uh, everybody is talking about this stuff. Um, there, there are now like we're tracking over 40 retailers that have launched a retail media network. So there's, um, there's a huge fragmentation problem for brands that want to or need to advertise on these things because all 40 of them have different infrastructures and tools. And most notably they have completely different metrics and success criteria. So there's no way to like apples to apples, how well your investment in any of these, these networks is working. Um, But there were a ton of sessions 
from the brand side, talking about, you know, if and how you should be playing on retail networks. There were a ton of sessions, including one I did um, from the retailer side, talking about how you should think about launching a retail network and use it. There were a bunch of um, the kind of legacy vendors that have been known for these retail media networks, like uh, um, Citrus Ad, which is owned by my parent company, and then um, uh, Critio. But there were also at least seven startups that were you know, launching new businesses to help either retailers manage a retail media network or brands advertise on a retail media network. So a ton of talk talking about it. I did a session that was interesting, at least to me, that was slightly broader than just retail media networks. It was, I was asked to talk about all the ways retailers could monetize data. Um, and, uh, I had, uh, with me, uh, Nadina, uh, Julianetti, who's the VP of, um, uh, marketing for, uh, vitamin shop. Um, mm -hmm. and so I kind of put together this framework for my session. Hey, there's three ways retailers can make money on data. They can sell their data, they can rent their data, and they could use their data. And for sale, I talked about all these examples like Walmart Luminate or, uh, Amazon premium analytics, um, or, uh, uh, Kroger's data, uh, licensing arm, um, or even selling data to IRI, uh, for use, we talked about how you could use that data in like personalization engines and generative AI engines and in targeted marketing campaigns. But the rent version was all about how you could use that data to launch and improve a retail media network. And, uh, the reason I call that renting is increasingly, the big trend in the successful retail media networks is selling ads that don't appear on your own website. So either off-site digitally. So um, I would buy a retail media network ad from Walmart that appears on Facebook. And the reason I would do that is because Walmart has better first-party data than I do since I can't use a lookalike uh, look audience from uh, Facebook anymore to build the exact audience I want. Uh, Walmart can. So if I pay them to run an ad for me, they can target that ad much better than I can. Um, and so the, the biggest retail media networks are getting a lot of traction with these sort of offsite, uh, ad units. Um, and then the other big thing that everyone's doing is trying to figure out how to move more of these ad units into the store. And most retailers still get more eyeballs and more, more footfalls in the store than they do on their website. And so if they're able to monetize the store space, that's uh, really interesting. And increasingly, these retailers are offering these clean rooms where you can kind of bring your data and they bring their data and you can you can kind of rent uh, some customer insight by by in an anonymous way, matching your data up with the retailers to get more insight about what your customers are doing. Yeah, and this is maybe to back up for listeners. Yeah. This is all really out of the IDFA and ATT changes, right? So. So Apple killed third-party tracking, and then Google followed, and all this first-party data is now worth – it's kind of gold dust because they have the best closed-loop data. Yeah. Is that a fair characterization of why this is now a thing? It is. I would say it's a it's a conflation of two things. One of them is that, um, that the first-party data from the, the Facebooks and Googles got depreciated by, by these uh, more stringent uh, privacy restrictions. Um, but then the second thing that happened is – uh, grocery e-commerce more than doubled. And, uh, an yeah. in, in inconvenient truth of grocery e-commerce is that it's wildly unprofitable. So there's all of this margin pressure on retailers, specifically in grocery. And so if you look at the, the retail media networks that are doing the best, it's Amazon, Walmart, Kroger, um, you know, that are the three biggest grocers in the U.S. And then, what is if a brand wants to be on like ten of the forty of these? How do they do that? It's just a they they just hire an agency to manage it all, or are there some tools developed coming along that will do yeah. that? Yeah, uh, so you you could do it in house. Every one of these networks offers some sort of tool. At the moment, these are all pretty rudimentary. So if you compare the the instrumentation for these things to like the instrumentation for buying an ad on Google, it's like it's several generations behind. Um, but uh, in most cases, it requires human intervention. So in most of these these networks, like you're literally calling a sales guy to place an ad for you, um, which is like pretty archaic, right? Like obviously, um, 
the the brands that want to do this themselves want to do it in a more automated way. And so the, this is where Amazon's the most ahead of anyone else. Um, and, you know, as you can imagine, the bigger uh, uh, companies have a little better instrumentation than the than the, you know, kind of mid tier retailers or in or certainly than any independent retailer. Um, so the the instrumentation is pretty rudimentary. Uh, you can uh, use an agency like like mine or, or many of our good competitors to do this for you. I would say the trend, while a lot of people use us right now, in the long run, they want to be able to do this themselves and not pay a middleman to do it for them. So they're they're all putting pressure on the retailers to offer better tools. And then there are third-party tools um, that try to learn the, the different data vulgarities and metrics from each of these platforms and kind of be a universal translator. And I, I describe many of these as like the channel advisor of retail media networks. Um, and I actually think channel advisor may offer a product in this space now too. Um, but like, uh, um, if you, uh, longtime friend of the show, uh, Melissa, um, from pack view is a tool that, that, uh, mm-hmm. Is, is is getting a lot of traction in this space. There's some traditional ad automation tools um, like Kinshu and what's now Sky uh, um, that that do all this stuff. So there's a lot of competition for tools. Uh, the tools are replacing a lot of inherent deficiencies in the in the media networks at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I like this one to many problem. So I wouldn't be surprised if Channel Advisor spoke around in there. Yeah. And then if you did it for Amazon, like uh, Melissa Burdick had yeah. done, uh, you know, then it's easy to add multiples. Yeah. And, you know, everybody started with Amazon and they're now starting to expand. Um, and so, there, you know, there's a lot of like coaching for people at different levels of maturity about all this stuff. Um, there were a bunch of retailers that came on and give case studies about how successful they've been. Uh, because these things are all pretty small, they're growing really fast. So like Ulta gave a presentation and they talked about how their retail media network's growing at 40%. Um, Macy's talked about how, you know, and this was kind of a sales pitch, but like, um, how, uh, you know, brands that bought their premier, um, retail media ad units, like, uh, had 25% better sell through than, than brands that uh, that did not. Um, so talking about the efficacy, um, the tracking and measurement of all these ads is super dubious right now, by the way. Um, Uber did a presentation, and I don't know if you've noticed this in Uber lately, but they're, they are leaning heavily into these ads as a new monetization channel. Um, I, I feel like they're way over the top. Like I keep you know, I'm trying to book a flight to the, uh, a ride to the airport and I've got to click through like, you know, click around eight ads to to do that, which is some somewhat annoying. Um, so there's a lot of positive momentum and everyone talking about this is the panacea and this is the way to make money Two more nuanced, interesting conversations. A lot of people are like, is this new? Like when you're talking about retail media networks moving in store, like isn't that a hundred year old practice called co-op advertising that like every retailer's been doing like it in many ways this feels like kind of the digitization of a a long-standing practice at retail and then you get into all these interesting questions where's the money coming from that's going into these ads is it a zero-sum game is it like are they taking dollars from their trade budget that used to go to a store circular and buying an ad with it or is this marketing money that used to be going to facebook and buying an ad with it um all of those conversations came up. And then for the first time, because this has been the most hyped thing in my world for, I don't know, two years, 18 months. Um, for the first time, you're starting to hear the stories that, and it doesn't always work out, right? That like, mm. it's it's a lot harder to do than it sounds like when you just see a PowerPoint presentation from a vendor that's trying to get you to buy their tool. Um, and, uh, you know, a bunch of these guys are are kind of stumbling like the the amount of eyeballs you have to sell like drop off really fast after you get past amazon and walmart um and so you know it the fragmentation problem becomes a real problem for uh for targeting and and uh uh, selling ads and we've seen at least one one retailer gap actually have to turn off the retail media network and kind of um give up and it makes perfect sense that they like wouldn't be successful because at the moment 
all the advertisers on these networks are what we would call endemic advertisers. They're people that are selling stuff through the retailer. And so, you know, probably have some additional interest in having an ad on that retailer's properties. Um, there are no insurance companies or car companies buying ads on any of these platforms. And if you think about it, what, who the gap does not have is any endemic advertisers, right? Like they sell all their own stuff. So yeah, they just had a hard time, uh, I think, selling enough ad units. Yeah, I'm sure Wall Street loves it, though, because it's just pure margin. It's so much easier to sell a pure margin ad than a product. I have a whole deck of CFO quotes talking about how, like, this is the greatest business I've ever seen in my 30-year career as a retailer. Um, <laughs> because they're like, it, there's 75% gross margin businesses for a bunch of companies that are used to 8% gross margin businesses. Yeah, yeah, it's game changer. It doesn't have to be. It can be eight percent of revenue, and it'll drive like. No, that's what I. That's what I keep talking about. Like you know, a bunch of these guys are um, like Uber just announced that they're near a billion dollars in uh, 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 ads. You know, that's I don't know. That could be a hundred billion dollars in GMV uh, equivalent, or or fifty billion dollars in GMV equivalent for Uber. Yeah. Actually, the Uber one's super uh, annoying because I feel like there's a misalignment there because they'll say your ride is three minutes away and they'll show you an ad and then suddenly it'll be like 12 minutes away and you're like, wait a minute. And then they, you know, they're almost incented to make you wait for the ride. Longer yeah, you're monetizing uh, your bad service. Yeah, yeah, that one feels like that's kind of bad. Yeah, and Probably there's a controversy with all of these things. Like you can... You know, what's the right level of this stuff to put in, right? Like a little bit of advertising, there's an argument that it it's a customer amenity and helps a customer, but but too much is super annoying, right? And, and in general, like, you know, people start to uh, start by sprinkling a little bit on this and it's not so objectionable, but once they get addicted to it, you know, the, the first organic result on Amazon is now, you know, often well below the fold because everything above the fold has been monetized. Yeah. Um, so that was the thing on retail media networks. Um, happily, my company has like 50 subject matter experts in that that know more than me. So I don't end up having to talk about that as much as I used to, uh, which I'm frankly grateful for because I don't I don't like the ad business that much. It's the least interesting part of our whole space to me. Um, but the next big trend was the whole evolution of social commerce. And uh, um, I'm kind of lumping uh, shoppable video into social commerce. So there were a bunch of platforms that gave keynotes. Um, Bill Reddy is the CEO of Pinterest. Uh, he gave a keynote um, and he had kind of an interesting metaphor. He's like, you know, for a long time, uh, uh, Pinterest has been kind of like uh, the digital equivalent of window shopping, except you were only window shopping at night when all the stores were closed and you weren't allowed to buy anything. Um and he's like, you know, the big goal for Pinterest this year is to open up all those stores and let you buy the stuff that you're interested in. Right. And he made, you know, some funny arguments. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of objectionable um, stuff on a lot of these social media networks and negative sentiment and all this stuff. And because, you know, Pinterest is mostly product centric, it kind of sidesteps a lot of those those controversies. Um, and so, you know, he talks about it as a much more brand safe platform than a lot of other social networks um they launched a second product uh last year called shuffles which is kind of a uh a um gen z version of pinterest that's even more um kind of shopping list centric um it has uh and it has uh more video and short form video on it vis-a-vis tiktok um and so they announced at this show a bunch of shoppable features for shuffles for example um they do have some live streaming, which one of the conversations of this show is that, you know, mostly live streaming isn't very high volume and isn't working. But what Bill was saying in their case is um, they're using AI to chop up the live streaming video and turn it into short form video that's not live um, and that that's monetizing pretty well. So, so you know, he gave a kind of interesting talk about... Um, Commerce getting uh, social getting more commercey from his perspective. Uh, TikTok was also a platinum sponsor. They had a big booth um, before Shop Talk. They launched um, the most robust checkout experience I've seen on a social platform. So they they have a multi item cart uh, called TikTok Shop. So you can add multiple items. You can add actually add multiple items from different vendors all in a single universal cart. 
and check out. Um, a lot of the things that I always point out are usually missing from social checkout, like in TikTok's, uh, to TikTok's credit, they've added. So this is a pretty robust shopping feature that they've launched. Um, and when they launched it, it came uh, with a Shopify integration. So the first cust- uh, clients that were on the shop were all like Shopify customers. So, you know, to me, the most recognizable brand was PacSun um, had, a, had, a, had their products on a TikTok shop. Um, and then at ShopTalk, uh, they announced the first customer that was using their Salesforce integration, which is the, the cosmetics company ELF. Um, and so, uh, so, you know, we're starting to see more robust, uh, shopping features on, uh, at least the TikTok platform. Um, WhatsApp, it's owned by Meta. They were pushing, they were also platinum sponsor. They were pushing a lot of new commerce features that they built into their chat um, interface. And so they're they're leaning heavily into this chat for business thing. And they have what's called, they've had it for, for Facebook and Instagram for a while. Now they're adding it to WhatsApp. So you can kind of use WhatsApp as your customer service channel for, for asynchronous chat. And you can uh, natively sell stuff through that. Um, ByteDance, which owns uh, uh, TikTok and uh, um you know, also one of the biggest platforms in in uh, uh, China. They have a they have a couple apps now that are doing really well. And you heard it here first on the show. The up and coming one in the U.S. is called Lemonade, which is kind of TikTok's version of short form video Pinterest. It's very product centric, wish list centric version of TikTok, um, and it's targeted at kind of um, uh, Gen Z users and they announced um uh, shopping features in lemonade so that was interesting um twitter had a i don't think twitter had a formal presence that i saw um but uh it kind of leaked during the show that they had applied for a license i didn't realize you uh i don't know who the governing body here is but uh to do in-app payments so uh you know uh elon musk likes his his digital payments um, and so it looks like Twitter's, uh, moving there. Um, Verishop gave a, a, a keynote. Um, uh, uh, the founder, Iman Khan, uh, gave a keynote. Um, and he talked about, so Verishop is a natively social commerce marketplace. Um, and he talked about how, you know, most social commerce experiences just suck and particularly the post purchase experience when you're going to get this stuff, how you would return it, um, the uh, shipping confirmation, all of, all of that sort of stuff. Oh, I forgot my promo code, all of that sort of stuff. Most of these native checkouts mit- are missing. And so, you know, he kind of positioned Verishop as a more robust version of all those. Um, and particularly interesting because they have a live stream feature and they're often called out as the live stream success story. And he said, live streaming is a mixed bag. He's like, live streaming converts way better than any of our other media types, but it has way poor reach than any of our other media types. So his thing was, it's very hard to get people to watch your video live. Um, but when they do, uh, you can sell them some stuff. Um, and then the last uh, keynote that was interesting to me in this whole social space is uh, Tapestry, which is the parent company of Coach, um, talked about this whole notion that, you know, people used to discover stuff in store and now they're discovering new products they want to buy on social commerce, on social media platforms. Um, and so sort of influencers are becoming the new merchants for all these products and so they talked a lot about their their uh, micro influencer campaign, and I'm always particularly interested. Uh, Tapestry uh, turns all of the coach employees into micro influencers, so they give tools to all their sales associates to kind of publish influencer content, and they financially reward them for doing that. So, so a lot of cool, interesting stuff in social commerce and short form video. In the hallways, there's still a lot of conversation about how you measure this and how big is it going to get? And, you know, are we going to catch up to China or are we inherently different? Like there are all these kind of, uh, you know, open questions that are still out there. But there was just a heck of a lot of talk about this whole problem of discoveries not happening on the sto- in the store as much. It's happening on, on uh, um, social networks. So, you know, how the heck do we make that discovery happen uh, as much as we'd like it to? Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating problem. The uh, Pinterest guys have been at it forever and never really 
broken the code on it. You'd think by now they would have figured something out. Yeah. This is the most explicitly I've heard them say, and we're all in on building commerce features. Um, the, you know, he talked about the progress they've made on onboarding shoppable pins. Like, you know, a, a small percentage of all the pins on the site are, are shoppable, right? And when I look at retailers, I have some retailers with huge catalogs and, you know, they could have millions, tens of millions, in a few cases, hundreds of millions of SKUs. And they might have like 6,000 shoppable pins on Pinterest, right? And so those pins do pretty well, but it just like, uh, the, the infrastructure of Pinterest isn't really there to handle these, these massive catalogs yet, but sounds like they're working on it. And by the way, the CTO at Pinterest used to be the CTO at Walmart. So he, uh, Jeremy King knows how to do commerce at scale. Wow. Cool. Um, so then my third trend. Uh, is like the most mega trend of the year at the show and outside the show. And there are actually a bunch of things that were like hinted at the show that then happened afterwards, uh, is the whole emergence of artificial intelligence. And whether you want to generically talk about artificial intelligence or specifically about large language models or generative AI, like there's, there's a million ways to slice this. Um, but I did a fun thing. I scraped all the exhibitors, uh, from the, the show and there's something like, uh, 680 something exhibitors at the show, if I'm remembering approximately right. Um, but 23% of them described themselves as an AI company. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so everybody has an AI story, whether they're, you know, how legitimate it is or not. Um, and, and I'll be honest, uh, this is a plea for anyone listening to the show. Um, do not send me an anonymous LinkedIn invite telling me that you're the one company that invented the revolutionary way to uh, shop via AI for the first time um, because you didn't. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I get a lot of pitches and I'm sure there's some amazing ideas in there, but there's also a lot of noise right now. Um, yeah. So at the show, I think Salesforce may have announced this at their own show beforehand, but um you know, they've had this AI um, persona called Einstein for a while. They announced uh, Einstein GPT for commerce. So for the Salesforce Commerce Cloud, they've licensed uh, the open AI technology. So they, uh, you know, you can now um, use the their language model for shopping functions on, on your Salesforce Commerce Cloud um, thing. Uh, Meta did a keynote and they talked a lot about... Um, all the use cases they saw for AI and, and they made like an interesting comment that Mark Zuckerberg and senior leadership are spending the bulk of their time on AI. And it almost feels like they're starting to do this pivot where like they're calling, they're, they're trying to call AI part of the metaverse so that they can stay, say that they're still on their original mission. But it, it seems like they're leaning into AI more than the, the metaverse right now. And they hinted about some new image tools. And then this week, they released a new tool um, called Segment Anything, which is sort of like an intelligent um, tagging and masking system. Um, so uh, uh, I put it through its paces. It's pretty powerful. Um, you know, imagine you're, you have a catalog of 100 million uh, appar uh, pieces of apparel and maybe you're a marketplace. So all that content was developed by different people. And you want to show all of the dresses on a mannequin instead of a live model. And you don't know if you have the talent rights to the live models. Um, the, the segment, anything makes it super easy to uh, like move all those, those uh, dresses to a mannequin or to a flat, you know, um, uh, merchandising hero image or, or whatever you want to do. Like, so these, these tools are solving real business problems for, for high volume e-commerce sites that are pretty interesting. Um, there was a lot of talk at the show. There weren't so many scheduled sessions on AI because if you think about it, Shopify or Shop Talk, you know, booked all their sessions months ago, slightly before all this Chad GPT buzz started. And so the titles of the sessions weren't so much AI generated, but the content in all the sessions was AI centric. Um, Chat GPT is something we've talked about several times on the show. We probably should do a deep dive, but they launched a new framework called plugins. And so now for the first time, you can extend Chat GPT with actual commerce actions. So you can say, 
plan us a, 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 a make a meal plan for a week. I want it to be keto friendly. I want the meals to all be under 2000 calories for the day um, and cost less than $20 and be easy to make and order all the ingredients. And Chet GPT will build you a meal plan, figure out the calories, figure out all the ingredients and place an order with Instacart or Shopify uh, for all the stuff on that that shopping list. And um, as you and I have talked about, the Chat GPT website is now a huge platform. It, has, it was the fastest technology in human history to get to 100 million active users. It took them two months. And so there's over 100 million people using that website every month, and they can now use it for actually buying stuff if they so choose. Yeah, the plugin framework is amazing. The, it's kind of a whole new platform. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's pretty exciting. A, a nuanced conversation I'm having with clients is that plugin framework is not for the API. So it's not so much like extend the capabilities of the AI engine you're getting from OpenAI that you're building into your own brand and mobile app. It's extending the capabilities of the website URL owned by ChatGBT, owned by OpenAI, right? And so it it really like they're creating a destination that arguably is going to compete with Amazon or TikTok for visits and attention. Um, and so it's, I don't know if that is kind of a, you know, a short term thing until this functionality gets, you know, ubiquitously deployed or whether that's permanently going to be a super high volume destination, but it, it's, it's super interesting right now. It, yeah, fastest product to 100 million users is Chat GPT. So exactly, it's well on its way to being a whole new destination. Yeah, and I, uh, it's it's been funny watching Google be so dominant for so long and all the excesses of. You know, one time I went there with an engineer and he had a hissy fit that he didn't get fresh coconut milk and <laughs> and yeah, you know, it just kind of has been raining money out of the sky for those guys for so long. It's going to be interesting to see them with a new competitor and see how they react. Yeah. I think, I think I think they've had it easy for so long. It's going to be very hard for them to react at all. Yeah, the, one of the keynotes was this guy Sean Downey, who's the president of Americas for Google, um, and that was his kind of first position. He's like, "Yeah, you know, search is one of the ways you'll use uh, uh, generative AI, but um, you know, they're like, I'm really excited about all the capabilities that you know we've built into Google Cloud Platform to enable other people's to do." AI. And so, you know, they're, they're kind of saying like, Hey, don't look over here at the large language models where we're not doing very well. Like, look, look at all these other things. Um, but he did kind of, you know, he, he, he openly talked about it and he's like, Hey, from our standpoint, there's three things that you're going to see retailers do with AI, right? Uh, where, you know, you're going to use it to help businesses grow. You buy better ads, do better marketing, uh, better targeting, stuff like that. You're going to improve operational efficiencies. And he talked a lot about the demand forecasting use cases. Amazon later d- gave a keynote where they talked about how they're really leaning into AI for, for, um, supply chain efficiencies. Um, and then you're, you know, you're going to have new customer experiences. Like it's going to be a lot easier to shop for a product you saw in an image or that you can see with your phone or, or things like that than it, than it ever was before. Um, and so. So yeah, he, he talked about it. Um, you know, Amazon talked about how they're seeing, uh, that they now have 600,000 SKUs that they ship in 90 markets same day. And so the big question is what's the right 600,000 SKUs to ship and, and which ones in which markets? Um, and so they were saying that like, this is really a problem that, that, you know, is way more efficiently solved via AI. And so they're, you know, increasingly turning over the, the demand forecasting to these AI models. Um, they're also like heavily leaning into AI automation for the, the fulfillment centers. And you, you know, you have talked about they originally acquired Kiva and, and which was kind of an early AI model. Um, and they were kind of slow to really push that out to all the fulfillment centers. But it sounds like with their new focus on efficiency, uh, that that the heat is turning up on automating all these these fulfillment centers with quite a bit more AI. Um, so those those kind of supply chain and back of house AI stuff were talked about a lot. A thing that I didn't think about that's coming up a lot is AI for employee training. Like that, there are all these like 
um, tools about uh, training people and helping people understand new concepts and having access to vast knowledge bases and things like that. Um, and so a lot of uh, the use cases at the show were um, AI tools for employee upskilling and education, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, of the obvious application that we've done the most with is AI for um, product content. So, you know, writing better product descriptions, writing more unique product descriptions, generating better images, um, stuff like that. Uh, and then, um, again, not a formal session, but a lot of hallway conversation about the brand risk associated with all of these AI engines. So, you know, Getty is suing one of the big AI engines for kind of illegally training um, on on uh, tr trademark Getty images. Uh, there was big news this week that a, some, a bunch of Samsung engineers were taking their most like proprietary secret code, like the debugging code for some of the the you know silicone chips that sil that Samsung makes, and uploading them to ChatGPT to debug them. <laughs> um, which, you know, then means OpenAI employees had access to all this, you know, all these Samsung trade <laughs> secrets. Um, so there are a lot of those kind of things. And the most bizarre but interesting keynote at the show, uh, and I feel like Shop Talk always gets one of these like left field keynotes where you go, why is this person at a commerce show? Was Jeffrey Katzenberg, um, who's, you know, one of the, the founders of DreamWorks. Um, and he works for a VC now, or is one of the founders of a VC. I think it's called Wonder Company. And one of the companies in their portfolio is a net, uh, is an AI company called, uh, Natomi. And the, they're trying to solve part of this brand safety thing. They've invented their own flavor of, um, large language model. They're calling sanctioned AI, where the, the, AI model is trained on a constrained set of data and it can only learn from that data. And so the, their pitch is, hey, you want to have an employee knowledge base and you don't want it to run, run amok and start trying to talk employees into leaving their spouses and stuff like that, that like this sanctioned AI approach is a much brand safer, sensible way to do it. So uh, I, I don't know where that all net out, but it's it's super interesting to think about some of these problems. Are you worried yeah, at all about of, AI? I am. Yeah, there's there's a lot of IP things to be decided. You know where you know right now these things are crawling all this data and coming up with these insights from it. You know, is that fair use? It's the copyright. None of the IP laws were written with any of this in mind. So <laughs> there's a whole 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 lot of lawyering that's going to have to go on to figure it out. So then being able to turn it on your own data is super handy because, you know, you, you own it and you could have your own little AI there. Yeah. Um, it's happening so fast. You can't even keep track of it. You know, there's, there's people that now have wired up chat GPT to these zero code interfaces. So you can using your voice and some prompts, you can build apps now. It's, it's just kind of, it's really crazy to see where this is going so fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, the speed is the, the super exciting slash scary thing. Um, there was this letter that came out last week, uh, you know, that was signed by um, a bunch of like super credible AI researchers and also some some like interesting, you know, competitors and, and people with likely ulterior motives uh, that was calling for a pause on on all AI research that's more powerful than ChatGPT4. Um, and so now, you know all of my clients that are like, Hey, I think I should be doing AI, but you know, I have too much to, on my plate and I, I don't know what to do. They're now using this letter as kind of an excuse to, to slow play it. Right. Because they're like, like, what are the, you know, concerns and ethics about all this stuff? So I, I don't, I'm not saying they're necessarily wrong. Um, but this letter is, I am kind of dubious of this letter. Did you follow the, that thing at all? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's going to cause anyone to slow down by any means. So it seems. Yeah, seems that's, that's the point. Like, it, like how could it like a it, it's like, uh, is China going to follow <laughs> the pot? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, you're not like there, nobody's going to be able to enforce it. Like there's no like what's the governing body that's going to enforce that. And it has language in it like uh, stop AI models more powerful than chat GBT four. Well, what's the metric for how powerful a large language model is? <laughs> like, yeah. how, you know, 
is is Baird more powerful? I don't know, don't right? But yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. But it it does put some fear, uncertainty, and doubt in the whole thing, which is just kind of interesting. Um, and then the last of my four trends um, is retailers becoming platforms. Um, so you have a bunch of big retailers, Amazon, Walmart, and Instacart, um, that between them had seven booths at the show. Walmart was a two-time go- uh, platinum sponsor of the show, right? So they separately have a Walmart Marketplace booth, a Walmart Commerce Technologies booth where they're selling um, their their SaaS commerce platform. They're selling their Walmart Go delivery services. And they separately had a booth for Walmart Data Ventures, which is Illuminate and all these the, these other services like monetizing Walmart data. Um, Amazon had three booths. They had a buy with Prime booth, which is super interesting. Um, and they were they were touting twenty five percent sales lift on sites that added buy with Prime. Um, and there was a lot of hallway conversation about the pros and cons of buy with Prime. Um, that Amazon Pay booth, which I found it interesting that they didn't roll Amazon Pay into the Buy with Prime booth, that it was its own separate booth. And then they had a third booth that I have to be honest, I think it was launched before the show, but I had never heard of it till the show called Amazon Today. Are you familiar with Amazon Today? I'm not. Yeah. So this is a service for brick and mortar retailers to list their in-store inventory on Amazon Search. And if a customer wants to buy it, they'll have an Amazon Flex driver go to your store, pick it up, and then deliver it to the customer. Hmm. So it's extending the marketplace inventory to the um, to the you know these brick and mortar retailers. And so like uh, GNC, PacSun, and Superdry were three retailers that were at least piloting it. And I uh, I I think what that means is like. Retailers that were that you know whose whose uh, inventory is in Shopify, which is funny that it's Amazon. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I hadn't heard of that service, and that that's interesting. Like I'm I'm digging into that service more, but like it's just super interesting that like a company that you think of as a competitor for a bunch of retailers has three separate booths at a, booths at a retail trade show selling stuff to other retailers. And by the way, they're a huge marketplace. They did not have a booth recruiting marketplace sellers. Uh, hmm. I'm assuming because most of the new marketplace sellers are located in other countries. Um, and then uh, Instacart, who you think of as a B2C company that has a bunch of consumers going to their website. They had a booth totally dedicated to all the white labeled services um, that they're selling. And most of them have carrot in the name. So I call it carrot everything. Um, they call it Instacart platforms. Um so it's it just super interesting to me to see all of these retailers, again, saying selling bananas is a low-margin business. It's way better to sell services like Scott Wingo used to do at, at uh, um, Channel Advisor. True. Yeah, there's you can uh, either go out looking for gold or you can sell the, the jeans, pickaxes, and shovels. Exactly. So, yeah, so you have a lot of prospectors that are, are uh, starting second careers as, as uh, pickaxe salesmen. <laughs> um, yeah and then of course there's all the 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 actual platforms that are you know dramatically expanding their their services so shopify leaning into the professional services market a lot more salesforce leaning into it and then a social commerce platform snap um actually like was selling all of their ai stuff which they're uh, or i'm sorry ar stuff which they're pretty you know advanced in as white labeled services to build into your own apps so for like lenses and things. Yeah. So like if you yeah. want, like, if you have a product catalog that you need, you know, that's like uh, home decor, and you need to visualize it in the cons- in the consumer wants to, you know, kind of use AIR to visualize it in the room or makeup try on or or you know those kinds of things. Um, or maybe you want to scan a shelf and overlay reviews over products on the shelf or any of those kind of AR use cases. You you can now license uh, a set of uh, um, Snap. Um, and I think they call it Snap Aries, which I think A R E S is an acronym for something. But um, uh, you can you can license all those capabilities from Snap instead of building them yourself. Pretty cool. Yeah. So that was in my those were my big takeaways from the show. Um, the kind of stuff that didn't make my list but came up a few times. There's a lot of talk about the the macro uh, environment, uh, macroeconomic environment, and all the uncertainty. 
there were a lot of sessions around convenience and rapid delivery. Um, there, you know, uh, re-commerce and resale is still a big thing. And there's kind of just this general notion that, that it's the year of efficiency. So retailers are investing a lot more in, in, uh, you know, stuff that has a short term ROI and that's kind of back of house and less in just growing at all costs. Do you feel like you've been in the show now? I do. That was awesome. You saved me a lot of travel and uh, a lot of trips to the Starbucks. Yes. Uh, but you, you missed enjoying a bunch of isolates with me and, you know, hearing from all the, the fans that appreciate your, your knowledge and POV on this uh, podcast. Yeah. We need to open up an auto segment and then I can uh, justify the trip. Uh, can't yeah. do it right now. Oh, I forgot <laughs> the most important part. Uh, they announced a new show. What is it? Uh, Shop Talk Fall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Shop Talk is normally in April. They have two shows in the U.S. Shop Talk in April, Grocery Shop in October. And then there's a Shop Talk Europe that's in, I think, June or May. Um, So they starting in 2024, they're going to have two Shop Talk shows in the U.S. Uh, The regular Shop Talk in Las Vegas in March and a uh, Shop Talk Fall, which will be in my hometown of Chicago, in uh late september wow. uh, yeah so second show i think there's some controversy if you're an exhibitor at grocery shop and shop talk those two shows might be pretty close together and it could be annoying um but i'm excited that a bunch of my commerce friends will have an excuse to come visit me in chicago um and I, i'm thinking we, i gotta uh host some kind of event uh for or a meetup for for listeners that want to get together because i i never get to uh um schedule meetings with as many people as I'd like to. Yeah. That's a lot easier to get to than Vegas for me. So we'll see. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is you and I, we should have a Jason and Scott show event and we'll get like a, uh-huh. a Foxtrot is a local uh, uh, market and restaurant uh, to host like uh cater breakfast tacos for everyone or something. Mm, okay. Uh, I'm liking the sound of that. All right. Did they announce the time? What's they we'll did. work with? Uh, and you'd think like if I was going to do a podcast, I would do some research or get my intern on it. Uh, it is October 8th through the 10th, 2024 in Chicago at Javit Center. Mm, okay. All right. Let me uh, check the calendar and get back with you. I like it. Uh, I know that was a lot. Uh, there was a little bit of Amazon news. Did you have a POV on the recent layoffs? It's been pretty dry in Amazon land. Um, they're just really trimming staff like crazy. So they announced yet another 9,000 layoffs. So I think this gets up to 27,000. Um, because Amazon rolls the warehouse people into their headcount, they're always at a million. So it's, it feels like a small percentage. But these are coming from, um, yeah, I've heard the Alexa team got hit pretty hard. Um, you know, Alexa was way out in front and all these new chat GPT capabilities are none of them are on a device yet, but pretty soon I think we'll see it all over the place. There's some speculation. Maybe Microsoft will come out with a, a new phone product that would be chat GPT enabled, which would be kind of an interesting, you know, next gen phone platform. So, so I think, you know, they, they've got a lot of pressures. They've got macro, they're having to trim their headcount to hit their numbers from a bottom line perspective. They overhired and then they're in this, kind of gun slash knife fight over AI. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do the rest of the year around some of these, these areas. It's, it's a it's tough sledding for sure for Amazon right now. Yeah. It's interesting because on the one hand, you, if you look at how many people Amazon added over the last 18 months, like the layoffs don't, you know, don't seem that severe, but it is interesting. Like some of these layoffs were in pretty key areas, like areas that you would think of as primarily, like um uh income additive like they like they laid off people in the Amazon ad unit right which um to me that's not necessarily where you'd expect to see to see hits i personally am a little sad that they have this huge focus on efficiency because i very selfishly feel like the the echo hardware uh is getting kind of long in the tooth and now there's all this new exciting large language model capability and uh, like I'm super eager to see like a vastly improved uh, solution there, and I'm I'm kind of worried that like all of this efficiency stuff is going to slow down the likelihood that it's going to come from Amazon. Yeah, I've I've talked to a lot of people at Amazon still, and something happened kind of during the pandemic where 
the whole work from home and then the explosion of employees, they've lost their efficiency. Um, so, you know, for a long, they, they did better than any other company with the two pizza team rule and all this jazz. But, you know, now there's so many two pizza teams running around. None of them know what's going on and it's kind of total chaos. And it's become very hard to get stuff done. Well, you so know, a lot of them feel like, you know, trimming the headcount could be a good thing. Yeah. No, I, uh, I feel like the investors have mostly liked it by the way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think the big problem is it's day two at Amazon. Could be. Yep. It sets the stage for a Bob Iger like return of Bezos at some point. Maybe he'll. Yeah. He'll I, I think that was, that was on the bubble for me as a prediction for this year. So, uh, I don't think I actually pulled the trigger on it. So, so I hope it doesn't happen this year or I'll kick myself. Um, but Scott, uh, what a shock. We've used up a lot of time again. Um, so as always, if you found value, we'd love it if you jump on uh, iTunes and leave us that five-star review. Um, and uh, super appreciate everyone uh, taking the time and all the kind words uh, that you've passed along to Scott and I. Um, the, uh, we're, we're grateful that the show adds value, and we really appreciate you guys. Yeah, have a great spring break, Jason. And until next time. Happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing. Subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 